Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So, thirst is a signal that you are dehydrated. Hunger is a signal that your stomach is empty. Loneliness is a signal as well. Loneliness is a signal that you lack significant personal relationships. That's nothing to be ashamed of. The real epidemic in this country and in every industrialized country is loneliness, or as I prefer to call it, aloneness. And there is no vaccine for it. We are social creatures after all. An article in Scientific American reported that human beings, being social, we are able to sustain five close relationships simultaneously. We can handle that number. Now, a close relationship is one in which you feel comfortable discussing personal matters, important personal matters with another person. That's a close relationship. And because we are social creatures and because we have a large brain capacity, and by the way, the two go together, we can maintain five close relationships at the same time. But most of us fall far short of that. In 1984, adults in America reported having three close confidants. By 2004, that number was down to two. Today, among millennials and Gen Z, it's even worse than that. Close friendships are rare among young people today. And let me at this point put a plug in for professional counseling, preferably Christian, whether it's marriage counseling, addiction counseling, anger management, whatever it may be, I strongly believe that all of us can benefit from that at some point in our lives. There's no shame in that. But what most of us need most of the time is simply somebody to talk to or someone to confide in, just someone to confess to. What most of us need most of the time is simply a listening ear. Our needs are not complicated. We're just not seeing that they're met. Now, God created us with needs. God created us with needs that can be met only through close personal relationships. And that starts with God himself. I direct your attention to page 10 in the bulletin. Verse 26 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now that's important. Because the Holy Spirit, and this is Roman number one in your outline, page 11, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person, not a thing or an it. And the word in the Greek, verse 26, for helper, parakletos, you could translate it helper or advocate or comforter. It is a masculine noun. <clears throat> now nouns can be masculine, they can be feminine, or they can be neuter. Right? It can be a he or she or an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. And point B, whom, the word whom, the, the word echinos in the Greek, is a masculine relative pronoun. So again, when we speak of the Holy Spirit, we're speaking of a person. And don't get gender confused here. We're, that's not the big deal. The, the point is, we're speaking personal, personal being. We see that also in letter C. He teaches and he awakens memory of what Christ has said. To teach and to awaken memory, those are conscious actions. They're the actions of a person. In point number one, under letter C, this is really a quote from Luther. The Holy Spirit has only one course in his university, and that is Christ's words. Christ's words. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In John 16, Jesus said, He will take from what is mine and make it known to you. And point number two, don't expect him, don't expect the Holy Spirit to bring new revelations. Don't expect that. Now, he could do that, right? He's God, he can do whatever he wants. But I'm reminded of what Bishop Gene Robinson said. He was the first uh, gay man to be ordained a bishop in a mainstream mainline denomination in the Episcopal Church. And when he was asked, how do you take the position you do and square it with Holy Scripture? Because Scripture, for example, in Matthew 19 teaches that Jesus gives a definition of marriage, the lifelong union of one man and one woman. And then how do you square that up, Bishop Robinson? with what Paul says about the qualifications for a minister in 1 Timothy 3, that he shall be, he shall be the husband of one wife. And Bishop Robinson's answer was, well, today the Holy Spirit brings us new revelations of his will. New revelations. Well, the Holy Spirit can do that, but will he do it when it contradicts his word? I think of verse 26, the words of our Lord, he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, 
He's not bringing to your remembrance all that he will say in the future, but all that he's already said in the past. That's the work of the Spirit. I'm suspicious of anyone who would add to the words of our Lord. The prophet Muhammad did that, flatly contradicting scripture. He sets himself up as a prophet, but he contradicts the entire gospel. And that's why I've cited Colossians 2.9, where St. Paul writes that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. There's nothing more you can learn about God apart from him. He is the perfect expression of the Father. What can you add to it? Number three, he, the Holy Spirit, leads the church into the future by reminding her of all the things Jesus has said in the past. We don't really need him to say more. We need to be reminded of what he's already said. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. Roman numeral two, the Father and Jesus seek to dwell with you. They seek housing with you. In letter A, throughout Scripture, salvation is pictured in this way, God dwelling in the midst of his people. You see that in Genesis 3. The Lord God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, seeking Adam and Eve. In Exodus, we read of the tabernacle being built, later the temple being built, and, and there are the sacrifices which point forward to the cross, and they're effective because of the cross, we see those sacrifices being made so that men and women can stand in the presence of the Lord. In Ezekiel, long after David is dead, Ezekiel says that David will come back and David will rule over his people and I, the Lord, will dwell in their midst. And, and of course, that's fulfilled perfectly in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation 21, the voice from heaven says, the dwelling of God is now with men. That's what we have to look forward to. That has been God's salvific work all along, to dwell, to live with us. Letter B, the word home, in verse 23, We will come to him and make our home with him. The word home refers to a permanent dwelling. And earlier in chapter 14, Jesus alludes to this. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you, meaning I go to the cross to prepare a dwelling place for you in heaven. That's a permanent dwelling, as opposed to a tent, a temporary dwelling. A skene is a temporary dwelling. Jesus, you know, the word became flesh and skenaod, tented among us, temporarily. Our Lord lived among us. But he sends the Spirit to live among us permanently. 
I draw your attention to verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, and by the way, why would we love him? It's because he first loved us. And this really is kind of a chain reaction. He loves us first. We love him in response. And we will want to keep his word, verse 23. And then in addition to that, my father will love him. You love the son, the father loves you. And we will come to him and make our home with him. And let her see. The word we mentioned earlier in the Greek that can be translated helper, advocate, comfort, parakletos, in reference to the Holy Spirit, literally means called alongside. The Spirit is called alongside you in this life. St. Paul closes his second letter to the Corinthians with these words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The triune God is fellowship. He is community. And to live apart from him is to live in isolation, is to live in outer darkness as the scripture describes. That's death, to be cut off from God. And no one is cut off from God except those who cut themselves off from him. Roman numeral three, Genesis 2.18. You know, God created everything good. He separated the light from the darkness, it was good. He separated the sea from the dry ground. The dry ground appeared. It was good, and so on and so forth, until Genesis 2, and we hear something is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, that's before sin entered the world. That's before the fall into sin. Something, the situation of man, with all the blessings that he had in Eden, something was not good. And the not good was his aloneness. Scripture teaches it's not good to be alone. Experience teaches us this as well. The scripture says two are better than one. A threefold cord is not easily broken. They've done experiments on mice. You know, mice are social creatures, uh, kind of like us. And when they're isolated from one another, when they're kept in a cage by themselves, their brains deteriorate, their nerve cells shrink. It's not good to be alone. But with us, it becomes a habit. With us, it becomes something we're comfortable with after so long a time. At letter A, we justify our aloneness. Relationships require effort. Relationships aren't easy. We need them, but in a fallen world, they require some work. They require an investment of time. They involve some risk. There's not always a return. So I would ask you, because I think it's true of all of us at times, whom are you avoiding? I mean, unless you have a restraining order against somebody, I don't think there's a good excuse to avoid anyone whom God has placed in your circle of acquaintance. Go out of your way to avoid them. And yet we do it because, well, we feel uncomfortable. 
I'm uneasy in the presence of that individual. Yeah, get over it. That desire does not come from God. It has a different origin, a different source. It's not the Lord. No. We justify our aloneness. It becomes habitual, and we justify it more and more. But it's not good. It is not good, and it is not God's will. Letter B, the ultimate cure for aloneness is Christ himself. And the forgiveness that he provides. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Sin separates. Christ's forgiveness unites. And remembering how much you need that forgiveness and how much you've been forgiven is what you need in order to forgive those who've offended you. I find it hard to forgive until I see myself rightly as the sinner that I am and the forgiveness that I need as a result. Then I can forgive. Let her see we are at home with God through Christ's word. Through Christ's word. Christ's words are like an umbilical cord that connect us to the Lord. It's really all we have, whether it's his word spoken or read, whether it's the word that is visible in the sacraments. The word is all we have. That's our umbilical cord to God. I love the way Peter put it in John 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no one else. Earlier in John 14, Jesus promises homes with the Father in the life to come. In my Father's house are many permanent dwellings. I go to prepare a place for you, right? But now, at the end of John 14, in our gospel lesson for today, Jesus promises that he and the Father and the Spirit will dwell with us in this life, right now. And God desires that for every human being. He desires to dwell, to make a home, a permanent dwelling with every human being now in this life, already. But not all return is love. Not all believe the gospel. Not all love Jesus as a result. Not all keep his word as a result. Is it any wonder, therefore, that people today more than ever before experience aloneness? Should that be surprising? When people do not know God who is community, who is fellowship himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if people do not know God as he has revealed himself in Christ, it's no wonder people feel alone. It's no wonder. My friends, when God makes his home with you, you're never alone. Because not only do you know God intimately, but you become a part of a network of relationships that always point you back to him, who is your true family, and who's able to meet all of your needs 
including the need for fellowship and companionship, who's able to meet all of your needs in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.